0: Hello and welcome to Reggie's Take Podcast, episode two of my Inner World series. On this episode, I will be talking about a movie celebrating 35 years of being one of, if not the best buddy cop movie of all time. A movie franchise that has had a license to kill now for 60 years, two television comedies, one about a shoe salesman with a dysfunctional family, and the other that looked at the effects of doctors and nurses over 11 seasons during a war that really only lasted three years. And finally, a sci-fi show that, 35 years ago, launched the Star Trek franchise into a new generation of adventures with a new captain and crew. And In case you did not listen to my previous podcast, I'm going solo now. In the past, I have always had a guest or a co host, and from time to time, my former co host, James, or a guest may still join me. I have titled my solo podcast in the world as I will be talking more about the movies and television shows I liked and the influences they had on me and on this podcast. I will be uh, talking about one of the best buddy cop movies lethal weapons starring mel gibson and danny glover as it celebrates 35 years this year one of the best i think in my book Uh, i'm also going to be talking about movie franchise that is celebrating 60 years this year in 2022 and that is everybody's favorite spy 007 Bond, James Bond. The James Bond franchise spans over 25 movies, and six actors have portrayed the British spy over those 25 films. Sean Connery and Daniel Craig are probably two of my favorite, and Roger Moore is right up there. We'll get more into that a little later. I'm also talking about three different television series that span from 1972 all the way up to 1997. Quite a span. MASH, it ran for 11 seasons on CBS from uh, 1972 to 1983. About the doctors and nurses of the Fictional Mobile armory Surgical Hospital, the 4077. It was set during the Korean War. The war itself actually ran for three years from 1950 to 1953. I grew up on that show. I love that show. Also going to be talking about Married with Children. It premiered in April of 1987 on Fox and it ran until June of 1997. It was and I think believe still is the longest live action sitcom that has aired on Fox. The show starred The show followed Al Bundy starring Ed O'Neill, former high school football player who scored four touchdowns in one game, of course, who turned out to be a hard luck woman's shoe salesman. (laughs) Also, we're going to take a trek up into space and the final frontier. Star Trek The Next Generation, believe it or not, celebrates 35 years this year since it premiered in September of 1987. It was just the second live action Star Trek series. It would run for seven years, spanning 178 episodes. They set it in the 24th century instead of the 23rd century where the original series was set. It followed the adventures of the USS Enterprise NCC-1701D under the command of Captain Jean-Luc Picard. I also realize this seems like a lot to cover in this podcast, and you're probably right, but my plans are to talk about uh, most of these franchises I just mentioned. Bond, MASH, Marriage Children and Star Trek. More in detail in future podcasts but for right now I'm going to kind of cover in general on this one. Talk a little bit more in depth about each one later. Whether it's just talking about one or a combination. You you might be wondering why these television shows and the Bond franchise. Uh, Well the simple answer is these IPs including Star Wars, Indiana Jones and the comic book movies are some of my favorites. They are part of my world. Let's kick off this podcast with the best buddy cop movie ever made Lethal Weapon Uh, it was directed by Richard Donner written by Shane Black it was released on March 6 of 1987 Shane Black wrote the script for Lethal Weapon in about six weeks that got him a deal with Warner Brothers Black would also appear in the movie Predator with Arnold Schwarzenegger that same year that Lethal Weapon came out in June of 87 Black would uh, later write their first draft uh, Lethal Weapon 2 but it was ultimately not used by Warner Brothers because his draft for the sequel actually killed off Martin rig. Let's dive into Lethal Weapon. It is widely hailed as probably the best buddy cop film to be made, and the Lethal Weapon franchise as a whole, I just thoroughly enjoy. I like one. It's dark. It's got some humor. I love Lethal Weapon 2. I love the way that movie starts out. I love Lethal Weapon 3. You know, some may cringe at this, but I actually kind of really enjoy Lethal Weapon 3 the most of the first three. I have nothing against the first two. I love them all, but 3 has really kind of been my favorite for years. I also enjoy 4. I did the 4 need to be made, not necessarily, but, you know, I really did enjoy uh, Lethal Weapon 4 uh, when it came out in 97, I believe. The first Lethal Weapon starred uh, Mel Gibson as Sergeant Martin Riggs, Danny Glover as Sergeant Roger Murtaugh, Gary Busey as Mr. Joshua, Mitchell Ryan as McAllister, and uh, also starred Darlene Love, Tracy Wolf as uh, Rianne, Roger's daughter, had an infatuation or crush on Riggs in the movie. Lethal Weapon was number one at the box office for uh, three weeks. It uh, grossed $120 million worldwide. There was an alternate opening and ending that were filmed for this movie. The alternate opening showed Riggs drinking alone in a bar where he's accosted by uh, thugs who attack him for his money. There's an extended director's cut of the movie that was also released on DVD. It's a little longer than the uh, original by seven minutes. Lethal Weapon as a whole, it's one of those movies where it's about two guys doing you know a job. Obviously they're detectives. Martin Riggs has lost lost his wife, as we find out in the movie. Murtaugh has a family, been a cop for a while, has also been in the military, served in Vietnam, which is how we come across Michael Huntsacker, who gets in contact with him at early part of the movie, as we find out, you know, the movie starts off with a female jumping off the building and crashing onto her car, and then we later find out, you know, she was on drugs, and those drugs were poisoned, and, you know, she basically (laughs) committed suicide in a certain sense. Riggs is obviously disturbed, a little messed up from his wife dying. Everyone thinks he's psycho trying to draw a pension between Riggs and Murtaugh. Danny Glover I thought you know was excellent. So was Mel Gibson in this movie. It was released back in March 6 of 1987. I was just a teenager. I remember the first time I saw it was not in theaters. It was on HBO. Funny story is we had HBO at the time and we didn't really have HBO that often as a kid growing up. It was one of those movies that was coming on and my dad my brother and I were like hey that sounds like a good movie to watch. We'll watch this. And my mom's like oh I don't want to watch this. I don't remember exactly what she said, and she said, well, I'm just going to go take a bath and I'm not going to stay around and watch it. And when the movie ended, she had stuck around for the entire movie and she really liked it. She may never admitted it afterwards, but she liked it because she was one of the first ones when we found out there was a sequel coming that she wanted to go to the theater to watch it. So that was kind of always funny. A couple of scenes that I think stand out for me in Lethal Weapon is where Riggs and Murtaugh respond to the guy who's wanting to jump off a building. Riggs goes up, talks to the guy, handcuffs himself, jumper, you know, jump off the building onto the air mattress down below. Murtaugh gets, you know, pissed at Riggs and Riggs is like, hey, you know, what do you want me to do? I got the job done, why are you pissed? They go into this building and Murtaugh is visibly upset knowing Riggs is passed. He kind of confronts Riggs are you trying to kill yourself? You know, are you suicidal? And Riggs pulls out the hollow point bullet and says doing the job is the only thing that keeps him from actually doing it. Riggs is handed the gun by Murtaugh and Murtaugh tells him to do it. If he's really wanting to commit suicide, just do it. And he starts to pull back on the trigger and at the last sec, Murtaugh puts his thumb in, in between the, the hammer so the gun won't actually go off. That's one of those moments in that movie that I think sets a tone between those two early on in the movie. You know, when Riggs starts to leave, he goes, I'm going to go get something to eat. Murtaugh's just like, holy crap, he is suicidal. I think one of the funner moments of this lethal weapon, uh, you can say there is fun moments, which I think there is, is at the shooting range. They're shooting at the paper targets and Murtaugh pops one and hits it dead center and then Riggs puts it further out and puts a smiley face on and Murtaugh asking, do you sleep with that thing? I would if I slept. There's moments in that movie that break the tension, that make you laugh or at least chuckle, but it's not necessarily like a uh, a Beverly Hills cop. Maybe a bad comparison for a cop movie. And uh, it worked. And of course, as we go along in the movie, we find out that uh, Murtaugh's friend Sacker is actually doing the books for McAllister and his former shadow company as, you know, they're bringing money in from heroin. Of course, you can't talk about Lethal Weapon without talking about how good Gary Busey was as Mr. Joshua. Definitely the psycho bad guy, even though he wasn't necessarily the head bad guy in the movie, as it were, but he really works. And of course, everyone thinks Gary Busey's a little nuts, not necessarily the right word for it. A little crazy, maybe. You're at least crazy looking. You played that part really well. The fight at the end in Murtaugh's yard was great. The whole thing with McAllister using Joshua's arm to hold a lighter underneath his arm, the guy looking to make a purchase. And it just makes that movie what it is. It makes that movie so good. And of course, making them believe Riggs is killed in the dry lake bed where Murtaugh tries to retrieve his daughter. Watching that movie, I always wondered. Why wasn't his daughter weaving more? But, you know, you're driving kind of in a sandy area and you're in a big limousine. I've got a few minor qualms with Lethal Weapon, but nothing to get overly uh, upset or anything like that. The movie itself just works. I've always loved the movie. And, of course, you know, the end of the movie, escaping. And then, of course, at the end, Riggs showing up at Murtaugh's house to give him the bullet. I don't need this anymore, thanks. Riggs has kind of come from a point from the beginning of the movie where he's, you know, contemplating suicide. And then get to the end of the movie where, thanks to his partnering with... Uh, Murtaugh and his budding friendship with Murtaugh, he he no longer feels he needs that bullet. That's one of those subtle things at least in my mind that just Lethal Weapon works on so many levels. Of course some of you may or may not know but Mel Gibson and Danny Glover both had different reasonings for um, signing up and taking on Lethal Weapon back in 1987. Gibson he said quote, "Uh, this particular story was a cut above others I had passed on because the action is really a sideline which heightens the story of these two great characters referring to Murtaugh. A guy who doesn't expect anything from life and even toys with the idea of taking his own. He's not like these stalwarts who come down from Mount Olympus and wreak havoc and go away. He's somebody who doesn't look like he's set to go off until he actually does. Danny Glovers, when he took on the role in Lethal Weapon, had come off movie Color Purple, and his reasonings for doing the the movie, he said, quote, aside from the chance to work with uh, Mel Gibson, which turned out to be a pure pleasure, one of the reasons I jumped at this project was the family aspect, which... I would say, you know, the family aspect of the Murtaugh's was one of those wonderful things about Lethal Weapon. The chance to play intrinsic relationship and subtle humor that exists in every close family group was an intriguing challenge. And as he was playing a guy turning 50, Murtaugh's little cranky about his age until everything he loves is threatened. His reawakening parallels Riggs. Both had different reasons for taking on the movie. And I don't know if I could imagine any two other actors in those roles made those roles almost, I don't know if I to say they embarked bodied those roles but they played those roles so well and did those roles so wonderfully probably never be able to recreate anything like it at least in a cop movie like that and god forbid they ever do reboot lethal weapon in the movies i know they tried to do it in the uh television series for two seasons and the first season was actually way better than i expected it to be i still had my issues with the show the first season i really enjoyed and the second season fell off a little bit for me hopefully you know no one tries and supposedly they're going to do a fifth lethal weapon that uh Mel Gibson said he was going to direct after the passing of richard donner richard donner passed away in uh, july of 2021 at 91 we'll see if lethal weapon 5 still actually happens or not i don't know what exact storyline you could do and i don't know how much action you you can still get out of out of those two but they may surprise me with that we'll see we're going to move on from Lethal Weapon and we're going to move on to talking about James Bond everyone's favorite British spy 007 himself James Bond is a fictional character that was created by author Ian Fleming in 1953 Bond is a British secret agent working for MI6 under the codename 007 he has been portrayed by six different actors Sean Connery George Lazenby Roger Moore Timothy Dalton Pierce Brosnan, and of course the latest who just ended his run as Bond, Daniel Craig. 25 official movies with Eon Productions, although I consider there's 26 because I also include the one Sean Connery did, Never Say Never, which was not an official James Bond movie, but it was a remake of Thunderball. I really like that movie as an older Bond in his later years. I unofficially include it in the Bond franchise. I'm probably sure there's some others out there who do the same. Producers Albert R. Broccoli and Harry Saltzman in 1961 purchased the film rights to Fleming's novels. They are the ones who founded Eon Productions. They started with Dr. No. Now, Dr. No is not the first James Bond novel, but that's the one they started with, which, which was released in 1962. Now, Bond is turning 60 years old this year because Dr. No was obviously released in 62 and this is now 2022 i don't need to remind you guys that as i go on in later podcasts i will come back to the bond franchise and i'm going to get more in depth with the bond franchise as i plan on ranking how i see the bond movies ranking them from number 25 or 26 if you want to include never say never all the way up to what i feel at least in my mind is is the best bond movie as most of you know movies are subjective lists are subjective, rankings are subjective so just because i see the Bond movies in one way doesn't necessarily mean it'll agree or line up with you and that's perfectly fine but it is fun to talk about that kind of stuff as we move along. Sean Connery starred in officially six Bond movies starting with Doctor No in 1962 and then From Russia with Love in 1963 Goldfinger in 1964 Thunderball in 1965 You Only Live Twice in 1967 and then of course he returned for Diamonds Are Forever in 1971. There is another Bond movie in between You Only Live Twice And Diamonds Are Forever. We'll get that here in a second. Of the official Sean Connery movies, I would have to say Goldfinger is probably his best from 1964. After that, probably Dr. No. I really kind of like and enjoy all the Sean Connery and Bond movies. Thunderball, I'm not as big on as maybe some of the others. You Only Live Twice. While I enjoy You Only Live Twice, let's face it, trying to make Bond look like he's a, a Japanese man and the makeup they did for the time, it just looks kind of funny and cheesy. But I still enjoy the movie. I enjoy the little helicopter. I believe they called it Little Nelly in that movie. I enjoy that scene. Goldfinger is definitely his best. I plan on getting to a lot of these in later podcasts, whether I group them by actors or as I do my rankings, I'm not sure. I have got a preliminary list. I've gone through two different preliminary rankings of the movies. One, just my initial thought, and then again, fine-tuning it a little bit. I would need to go back in and add in the latest Bond movie from Daniel Craig, No Time to Die. I've got to figure that into my equation, because when I started that my rankings No Time to Die had not come out yet and I had not seen it yet but now that I've seen it I need to go back and figure out where I've seen No Time to Die Sean Connery had initially left after You Only Live Twice, George Lazenby came in for Her Majesty's Secret Service, while I know On Her Majesty's Secret Service is loved by the critics, I do not like that movie, I've got nothing against George Lazenby as an actor or as Bond, I would have loved to have seen what he might have been like as Bond if he would have stuck around and say done, diamonds are forever and live and let die and the man with the gold and gun if those movies had still happened the same plots and written the same way as they were for the actors who did do them I can't really give you how I like George Lacey as Bond since he only did one movie but the one movie he did do I'm not big on was it great having Telly Savalas come in and do a bad guy sure I don't know there's just a lot of things with On Her Majesty's Secret Service that I just don't care for that movie as a Bond movie I tried watching it here oh I say less than six months ago and while I would say it's not horrible I mean I've scene many other movies and other franchises that are way worse, but as far as Bond itself, that movie just ranks near the bottom for me, and I've tried to love it, I've tried to see what other people see in it I just don't see it for me. And then Sean Connery came back to do Diamonds Are Forever after Lazenby had left the franchise after getting Bad Advice, which you can find out online and read about that. Roger Moore came in and did Live and Let Die and The Man with the Golden Gun initially, back to back in 73 and 74. Live and Let Die is okay, it's it's different obviously Gene Seymour is gorgeous in that movie. And The Man with the Golden Gun, I actually kind of find it the fun, enjoyable movie. Of course, The Spy Who Loved Me in 1977, Moonraker in 1979, which wasn't originally, I don't think, in the works. I think Moonraker came out because of the popularity of Star Wars, and I think that got them, the Bond people, going, oh, maybe we should do something kind of spacey. For those who may or may not know, at the end of The Spy Who Loved Me and at the end of Moonraker, nowadays with the Daniel Craig movies and even with Pierce Brosnan movies, at the end, it always just says Bond will return well originally it would always tell you the title of the next Bond movie well at the end of The Spy You Love Me and Moonraker it says James Bond will return in For Your Eyes Only so there's a little something trivia for you to know I mean Moonraker's okay it's got some cheesiness and of course Jaws returns from that he's the only henchman I believe really to return from a different movie which he had appeared in The Spy You Love Me Jaws is great Jaws is probably about the best thing about Moonraker of all the Roger Moore movies which also include Octopussy and A View to a Kill, I really enjoy For Your Eyes Only. For Your Eyes Only, maybe maybe my favorite Roger Moore Bond movie. It's not over the top. It's just a simple, basic Bond movie in my book. It doesn't pretend to be something more than what it should be, and, and I really enjoy it. It's definitely way more grounded than what Moonraker is in that regards. Octopussy and A View to a Kill. I'm not big on A View to a Kill. The guy who plays Zorn, Christopher Walken, I've never been a huge Christopher Walken fan. I never cared for him in Batman Returns. Guy may be one of the nicest guys ever to walk the Earth, but as far as an actor, the way he comes across, I can't watch the man on film. And maybe that has clouded my judgment with A View to a Kill, but I've never been a fan of a View to a Kill. I think a View to a Kill has some interesting things going on with it, with adding Grace Jones in there. I think that's kind of your first time really having a, a female henchman, per se. And Octopussy, I know a lot of people, I know James thinks Octopussy is one of the worst Bond movies. I really like Octopussy. It's, is it one of the best, critically? Probably not. Does Octopussy have its issues? Yes, sure. Then again, what movie doesn't have issues? At least with the Bond franchise. But I really enjoy Octopussy. So I would probably say for your Eyes Only, The Man with the Golden Gun, and definitely The Spy Who Loved Me are probably the three of the better Roger Moore movies in my book as far as when it comes to Bond. Now we come to kind of Timothy Dalton, who did The Living Daylights in 1987 and and License Kill in 89. While there's nothing wrong with Timothy Dalton as Bond, I think the problem that I have, I've never been a big fan of the Timothy Dalton movies either, and it's not because anything to do with Timothy Dalton, kind of like it is with George Lazenby. I will say that The Living Daylights and License Kill were ahead of the time for when they were done, only because they did what the Daniel Craig movies, they tried to make Bond a more more grounded Bond, a more grounded spy. tried to make those movies more, call it, realistic. And while I would prefer watching Living Daylight over License to Kill, just never been high up, at least for me, as far as Bond. And of course, we got Pierce Brosnan, who took over the role after their six-year hiatus. Eon Productions had some legal issues. Bond came back in 95 with Goldeneye, and then we got Tomorrow Never Dies in 97. The World is Not Enough in 99, and Die Another Day in 2002. Die Another Day is definitely the worst of the Pierce Brosnan movies while it could be looked at as fun to watch yeah no the whole invisible car thing just kind of like you've fallen off the cliff with this at least with the Pierce Brosnan ones in my book Goldeneye and Tomorrow Never Dies are definitely the two better ones with Pierce Brosnan of course you come to Daniel Craig who took over the role for Casino Royale in 2006 Quantum of Solace 2008 Skyfall 2012 Spectre 2015 and of course No Time to Die that came out in late 2021 now I Never got a chance around to see it in theaters. I watched it in early 2022 when it came out on home video. I know some complained about No Time to Die, but, you know, I thought what they did with Daniel Craig's Bond was... Was something they have never done before with a Bond. But you saw Bond, how he began, how he became a double O with Casino Royale. And then you saw this relationship and this growth as Bond come through with Quantum of Solace and then Skyfall and then the Spectre. And then of course, they actually brought Daniel Craig's Bond to a conclusion, which usually when you find out, oh, this is such and such actor's last time as Bond, this will be this last time you'll see him appear on the big screen as Bond. You know, it's just another Bond movie. It ends, Bond's the hero couple years later, oh, look, hey, we've hired X actor to star in this new Bond movie. Well, this time they actually brought Bond to a conclusion, which I actually kind of liked that that idea. They brought his story from beginning to middle to an end over a course of five films. Some say no time to die. They killed the franchise. I've read where some have said that, and I don't believe that at all. I just think those people who have said that, in my opinion, don't get what they were trying to do. That's just me, as I said movies are subjective. Casino Royale and Skyfall are definitely my two favorite of the Dana Craig era of Bonds. I really loved Skyfall when it came out in 2012 and Casino Royale is just, I I don't know if there's a a better Bond movie as far as from beginning to end. You may not find another one like that except for maybe Goldfinger, maybe even The Spy Who Loved Me. Probably add in Doctor No and maybe Russia for Love into that equation. As I talked about, Never Say Never Connery came back. It was a remake of 1965 Thunderball and that came out in 83 three which is the only year you'll find two bond movies hitting the theater in the same year that was the same year octopussy came out with roger moore i'm gonna come back to bond in later podcasts with my rankings and a little bit more into each movie and and the actors for me growing up it was always roger moore roger moore and sean connery i saw all these movies on tv as they came out for those who are old enough and, and remember this it used to be i loved the summertime when i was obviously what kid didn't love summertime because you're not in school but ABC used to for several summers in a row several years actually Saturday nights were Bond nights and they'd run starting with Dr. No and just run one after another each week they'd go all the way up to the latest one that they could show on TV and that's how I remember seeing Bond and just being able every summer watching a Bond movie I thought that was great that's how I saw most of them I actually didn't see my first Bond movie in the theater until 1995's Gold Night with Pierce Brosnan. Now, I've seen everyone since then in theaters other than No Time to Die, but that's Related because of pandemic and personal choices, and I own every one of these movies, good or bad, on home video. Of course, as I said, Bond celebrates 60 years this year as a franchise. You don't find too many movie franchises that span that long. Star Wars is over 40. Star Trek, if you want to go back to when it started on television, is up there. But as far as movies, Star Trek didn't putting out movies until '79. If you want to look at it as far as franchises, Bond's definitely been around one of the longest and one of my favorite movie franchises out there not named star wars star trek or indiana jones or the marvel mcu the marvel mcu is a whole different subject at a later time gonna go dive into some television here we're gonna start with married with children and of course it premiered in april of 1987 and concluded after 11 seasons married with children starred ed o'neill as al bundy who sells women's shoes at a shoe store this show was created by fox they wanted an quote anti-Cosby type of show. Cosby was on at the time on NBC. It was really popular. The Cosby show at the time embodied everything about family, family values. Well, they wanted a completely opposite, dysfunctional family. Married with Children gave you exactly what you thought. Everything that could possibly go wrong for a family, just everything that was basically not Cosby was in the show. <laughs> and, and at times, this show would not get away with half the stuff they did if this show was to be made today with today's culture and today's pc world but for the time running in the late 80s through the 90s a lot of jokes and putting down of females and larger females which don't take me wrong i would never do such because my wife is a larger woman and i love my wife to death but as far as the context of the show would a guy like al bundy be around for very long or, or survive very long in a role world like that no 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 not at all i mean his ways were were wrong and for as much as he always quote hated his wife and his kids and always wanted to leave. He would be the first to defend them. The show had a total of 259 episodes, although only technically 258 actually aired on Fox, because there is the one episode Fox would not show that later get released on uh, home video and then was shown in syndication. The show starred Ed O'Neill, Katie Segal, Amanda Bierce, David Garrison, Christina Applegate, David Faustino, and of course later on Ted McGinley, who would come in after David Garrison's uh, left the show as Steve Rhodes. McGinley came in as Marcy's new husband Jefferson Darcy there are some funny funny episodes in marriage with children one of my favorite ones is in the eighth season luck of the Bundy where Al's talking about you know simple Bundy nomics. when a bundy builds up a certain amount of good luck an equal amount of bad luck also builds up and that episode is just so funny to me it's everything that goes on this show as I said it is by today's standards it would not make it on air it would not get past a lot of the episodes they would be called out for the show was just great and this show is actually 35 years all this year but I can't really believe that when I was going through setting up for this podcast it's just like really? 35 years wow I couldn't believe it. it's been that long and of course they used the opening theme song of Love and Marriage which was performed by Frank Sinatra uh, from 1955 actually I mean I knew the song was Frank Sinatra and it but I didn't realize it was from 1955. The longer the show went on from the first season and you look at it even all the way up to the love season the first couple of seasons the Bundys were more family they weren't so out there. Peggy would still cook in the first couple seasons and and stuff like that and as the show went along, Peggy did less and less. These characters came almost, I want to say, more cartoonish but at the same time, as the show went along it also just got funnier in my book. Christina Applegate takes a lot of talent as an actress or an actor to play someone that was supposed to be as dumb as what her character Kelly Bundy was supposed to be. I don't know how she did it without cracking up every time when she worked that show, but I would have to say props to her. And of course, the writers would take some things from what I was reading of david Faustino's real life and they would kind of work them into the Bud character and just the whole show itself i actually prefer steve david garrison's character in the first three and a half seasons he was on because he left midway through the fourth in middle of the fifth season they brought in ted mcginley's character of jefferson darcy jefferson darcy i mean as a character he was fine he was okay but i kind of like steve better as marcy's husband than i really did jefferson still the show still revolved around it. Ed O'Neill. There are several episodes you get into that I really love. One where they're trying to get Psycho Dad back on and they go to Washington D.C. to protest in front of Congress to get it back on. Obviously the luck of the Bundys and Jefferson gets them into playing poker with a bunch of mobsters. Just the different episodes that they do that are just so ridiculous. Always bring it up. I was once a great athlete. Scored four touchdowns in one game. The constant running joke. At some point at a later podcast I will give you my 10 or 15 best episodes of this series. I still watch this show today even though it's been off since 1997 I still watch it constantly I've got it on DVD got it digitally I just enjoy the show for what it is and the comedy that they gave with the show I just really enjoy it moving on to a different TV show it started after I was born of course but I was still too young to watch most of the show I'm talking MASH Not MASH, the movie from 1970, but I'm talking MASH, the television series, which was based off the movie. It premiered September 17th of 1972. When MASH premiered on television, I was not yet two years old. I would say majority of this show, I don't really remember watching as a kid. Also, my bedtime was before then. And I think most people understand, you know, as a kid, you always had bedtime. But I saw most of this show in syndication and in reruns. My dad loved this show. I do remember seeing the final episode where they all go home and the two hour movie Goodbye, Farewell, Amen where they finally end the series MASH is one of those I think endearing and probably will never go off the air kind of like I Love Lucy has never gone off the air I think MASH will always be running somewhere on some channel constantly for as long as television exists this show some people say well it got too preachy after a certain amount of years and because Alan Alda but more wasn't anything to be funny about and I think they didn't necessarily lose what the show was about as far as a comedy but they also weren't just going to make get a big laugh like War was oh it's just one big joke you know there are definitely some serious episodes the later you get but there are also some still some really funny episodes though so even in the later years there are some really good ones actually the show almost got canceled into the, the first season this is one of the shows kind of like with Cheers in the early 80s Cheers also finished at the bottom of the television ratings at the end of this first year and MASH basically struggled to find any sort of audience but CBS gave it a second shot and they moved it in its second season to behind All in the Family and never got out of the top 10 after that. People discovered it in reruns, and then when CBS moved it behind All in Family, it found its audience, and it stayed as one of the more more watched TV series the rest of the time it was on the air, and the final episode that I was talking about, it is and still ranks as the highest rated series finale. When Goodbye, Farewell, Amen aired, it became the most watched and highest rated single television episode in the history of the U.S., with a record breaking 125 million viewers, which equates to a 60.2 rating and the 77 share, and we still remains as the most watched finale of any television series and most watched episode of. a scripted series ever now. There have been other sporting events, Super Bowls and stuff that have gotten higher ratings, but those are sporting events. This still remains as the highest scripted TV series episode ever to air on television. I don't know if this particular record will ever be broken considering the amount of channels you now have to watch besides streaming, cable, satellite, and back when this aired, cable was still in its infancy in a way, and Fox was not a thing, so it's still just ABC, NBC, and CBS, and PBS. That Just shows that a lot of people wanted to see how these characters were going to go home. The first three seasons had McLean Stevenson as Colonel Henry Blake as its commanding officer, and they also had Trapper John played by Wayne Rogers. And of course, after the first three seasons, those two characters left. Fourth season, you saw Harry Morgan and Mike Farrell come in as Colonel Potter and Captain BJ Honeycutt. So as the show ran through its 11 years, actors left, and as actors left, they brought in new actors, different characters, and I I think that's part of the reason why this show was able to survive and run way longer than what the actual Korean War actually lasted. It was You brought in new people, new characters, new stories, different things you could do, different stories you could tell. Now, of course, when you watch, if you've ever watched MASH, then you know like the first three seasons with McLean Stevenson, as Colonel Blake are probably more funny. They're not as serious. There's a few episodes in there where they, they tackle some serious things and try to do so. All three seasons are, are definitely more lighthearted. And as they got into to Colonel Potter and Mike Farrell's B.J. Honeycutt. As they went along, they got into more serious episodes, definitely some episodes that don't have any funny moments. And of course, you know, when McLean Stevenson left, they killed his character off. As they said, not everyone in war gets to go home alive. He didn't make it. Larry Linville, who played Major Frank Burns, I've read where that guy was one of the nicest guys you'd ever want to meet. But as soon as he got into his match outfit, got into character, he instantly became Frank Burns and he stayed in character. And you could watch the show, and you know, I was like, oh, he's just an ass well he stayed in character and he was just so good at doing it and of course i could see why he left after five seasons because you know there's not much more you can do with that character and of course when they brought in uh, david ochden as uh, winchester there were so many things more you could do with winchester that you could never have done with with Major Burns or Larry Linville. So this show evolved over time and over years while there's still some really funny episodes and there's some serious episodes MASH is just such a wonderful TV series and I definitely have my favorites. I definitely have some episodes that I don't care for. Everyone has episodes they like and that they don't like episodes that are okay could be better but at least they're not as bad as this particular episode. It's just a matter of taste and MASH is one of those shows as a kid as I watched them more in syndication than I did actually in, when they aired in primetime. I still love this show. I've seen this entire series many times as I grew up as a teenager, and then also as an adult, where I got them now all on DVD. And this show is just so wonderful. And of course, Mass celebrating its 50th year this year since it premiered. There's several actors that have passed away since the show, but left the air. Wayne Rogers, McLean Stevenson, Larry Linville, Harry Morgan, William Christopher, and David Ogdenstiers have all passed away since the show has ended its run. When you watch and you think about it, it's like, oh, wow, these actors have passed away. It's just because it's been that long and it's kind of hard to think about sometimes. MASH is one of these I plan on coming back and dedicating uh, pretty much an entire podcast on this show. And like with Marriage Children and MASH, probably be doing some posts on my website, too, with my favorite episodes and stuff as the year progresses. Finally, the last thing I'm going to talk about is Star Trek The Next Generation. It came on the air in September of 1987. I was still in high school, dating myself. I was never a big fan of the original Star Trek series from the 1960s. My big foray into Star Trek came with the movies. My first Star Trek movie I saw was Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan, spending time with the grandparents one summer, aunt and uncle. My uncle was manager of the theater where my grandparents lived, and that's how I saw Star Trek II. And then, of course, I saw the movies as they came along eventually got around to seeing the motion picture i could not tell you exactly when i saw the motion picture so when next generation came along i didn't necessarily watch it initially But when I did start watching it, I really enjoyed it. And it's actually thanks to my grandfather, who passed away in 2010, that is the reason why I'm really a huge Next Generation fan. It's also because of Next Generation that I went back to watch the original series. For me, when I say I love Star Trek, it's because of the movies from the original cast and the television series of Next Generation, which also led me into Deep Space Nine and and Voyager. Not a really big fan of Enterprise. While there are some episodes of the original series I really enjoy, to me, there's more misses in the original series than there are hits in my book. I could say the same thing about Next Generation. There are some episodes in Next Generation i like, oh god, I can't watch that one again. It's just, I, no, I don't know what they were thinking. There are quite a few episodes that I just thoroughly love with Next Generation. I think, to me, Season 3 has so many really good episodes, and you can definitely tell it was coming into its own for TNG that year with Yesterday's Enterprise, Sins of the Father, Best of Both Worlds, obviously Part, part 1. Just so many good episodes in season three. I say season three and season four were really some of the best years of Star Trek: and The Next Generation. Don't get me wrong. I have episodes that I love in seasons three, four, five, six, and seven. There's episodes in seasons one and two that I really love. I think one of the top five episodes, period, of the series exists in season two, and that's "The Measure of a Man," where Data's rights as an android are on trial. Does he have the right to choose as an individual in Starfleet? And because Commander Maddox wants to basically dismiss symbolim to try and create hundreds of datas. I don't know season one and season two for me of Next Generation are kind of about the same there are more misses in, in those two seasons than there are hits in my book there are some decent episodes scattered through those first two seasons probably one of my favorite top five episodes exists in season five with the inner light the first time I saw it I wasn't so sure about it but the more times I watched it the more I feel that inner light is definitely one of the best episodes along with measure of the man now I know everyone can say oh best of both worlds part one and two are the two best. While I will agree best of both worlds part one and two are two really good episodes and it establishes the Borg as probably one of the best Star Trek villains to be brought into the franchise and into the series itself. Although we did get introduced to him in season two with Q Hugh. While I enjoy Best of Both Worlds, Measure of Romana and Inner Light to me are head of Best of Both Worlds. The episode of Darmark is up there for me. Tapestry, where Q gives Picard a chance to avoid getting stabbed in the heart by Nosikans. That's a good episode. There's some really good episodes of TNG that I just really love. TNG got spun off into their own movies four of their own with uh, Generations, First Contact, Insurrection and Nemesis. Obviously First Contact is really good. Insurrection Insurrection's is not a bad TNG movie. I think it takes a lot more hits than necessary. Insurrection is like a, a two-part TNG episode with a movie budget. Insurrection would have made a great two-part episode on the TV. It just it happened to have a movie budget. But there's nothing wrong with Insurrection. While Nemesis does have its issues, I've kind of softened a little bit on Nemesis over the years, and I really feel like the sacrifice play, if they were trying to go for a character impact like Star Trek 2 had with Spock, it needed to be Picard to make the sacrifice play instead of Data, but that's just my opinion. But if that had taken place, we wouldn't be getting Star Trek Picard, which I have not started watching Season 2 yet. I really enjoyed Season 1, and I realized the newer modern Star Trek TV shows may not be, in some people's eyes as good as what we got with TNG and, and even DS9. In some ways, I'm happy we're getting newer Star Trek on the air and that's fine with me. I still need to go back and watch it although I've heard some complaints about season two but the complaints I've heard to me are more subjective opinions about it. I can't really say for sure if they are right or or if they're wrong about it what they see in season two because I have not watched it yet. There are just some fun episodes of TNG there are some really serious episodes of TNG and that show celebrates 35 years as well this year since it premiered. It's one of those things I can't believe it has been around that long. As I said with MASH Meredith's Children this is one of these things where I'm going to be revisiting this one as well uh, over the course of this year. It will definitely get its own podcast, how I see episodes and and definitely be giving you my top 10 or what I feel is my top 10 episodes. Now whether or not I give you what I feel are the 10 best episodes as far as quality or I give you just my 10 favorite episodes cuz what I would feel would be the 10 best episodes as far as quality would look different than what my 10 favorite episodes would look like. To me there's a difference. In my mind I can have 10 episodes I really like that I really loved and enjoyed to watch, and then also have a list of what I feel are the 10 best quality episodes of TNG. So those two lists could look different, and I may do that, just haven't quite decided yet. I appreciate you taking the time to listen. And as always, you can listen to my podcast on pretty much your podcasting platform you love to listen to, whether that's Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher. You can pretty much find me. That's a good thing. as I've been able to add a few more to the list. You can always check out what I've got going on on ReggieTate.com, or you can find my Facebook or Twitter pages and follow me on those two sites as well. I look forward to talking to you later. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk at you next time.